Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Podcast, episode 46. I'm Chris Webster. And I'm April Camp Whitaker. On today's episode, we are going to be talking about my field school this year at Amachi, which is a Japanese incarceration center located in southeastern Colorado. Let's dig a little deeper. All right, well, welcome back to the Archaeology Show. It's been like four weeks or so since we've had an episode. And, and you know, the two before that were a little bit strange because I included audio from a live show we did here in town, which was something, I figured it was something way different than we usually have on the archaeology show, but it was in line with what we're doing with the archaeology show, which is engaging with the public and trying to trying to talk to the public about issues in archaeology. So hopefully people weren't too offended at all because there was some strong language in there because it was a 21 and over show <laughs> and we were drinking wine so and beer. Um, so there's that. But anyway, uh, the show after that, I wanted to address some news items. So I just did kind of a solo show. And then we just had a break. Uh, we had a break because, quite frankly, I didn't want to do uh, just another random solo show. I didn't have any interviews on the slate at the time. And I feel like running a rerun is not what we do here on the Archaeology Podcast Network. We don't do that. These are podcasts. You can always go back and listen to back episodes in our catalog at arcpodnet.com. And so if we just don't have an episode, we just don't have an episode. And quite frankly, the community of podcast listeners out there is probably much like myself. I'm like a month and a half behind on my podcast, so I wouldn't even know if somebody missed an episode. It would just roll right through to the next one, and I wouldn't even be conscious of it. So if you're one of those few listeners that actually listens on the day that it's released, I apologize for not having the episode, but hopefully maybe you went in our back catalog and, and got your fill of, of April and I, because <laughs> we're up to 40 some odd episodes now. So speaking of April, the reason that we did all that was because she's been gone. She's a practicing, you know, working archaeologist, and she had her field school that they do every two years and uh, and was gone for a couple of months. So welcome back, April. Thank you. It was um, a work vacation. That's definitely what it was. <laughs> yeah, that pretty much describes field schools. Yeah, and every <laughs> year I think that I will get... I will, you know, get other things done and be able to do things like continue podcasting, and then I get to the field... And I remember how all I do is field school and that it is a 17 hour a day job for the five weeks of field school, but it is completely and utterly worth it. But yes, it is, you know, when you're a student on field school, it's super fun and you like get done in the field and you do lab work and then you hang out with people and when you go direct it, you get done in the field and then you continue working until you fall asleep in a desk chair. Uh, <laughs> and then you wake up at 4.30 or 5 a.m. and get going again. Yeah. So it's uh, yeah. some of the shine wears off. But at the same time, I look forward to it so much every other year. So much. I get super excited and I'm already planning for my next field season in two years. So it nice. will be amazing. So uh, I know Amache only goes every two years uh, for that particular field school. So have you always been leadership at this field school or did you ever have a chance to just at this particular field school to just, you know, kind of do your work and and relax at the end of the day? (laughs) 
So this, the Imachi Field Schools run by Dr. Bonnie Clark at the University of Denver, and that's where I got my master's. So she started developing the project in 2005, 2006, and then our first field season there was actually in 2008. And Dana Shu, who's now at Sonoma State, and I were the first graduate students on the project. There'd been some other graduate students who'd done work through the university at the site, but we were the first two to help with the field school and we helped design the forms and it's a cool project because it's always been guided both by Dr. Clark's research interests, but also by the research of whatever students are part of it, Mm -hmm. um, whatever grad students. And so that year we were collecting the master's research for Dana and I, and we were the crew chief. So she was the archeology span crew chief and I was the museum crew chief actually. Hmm. Um, but I came in the field all morning. So I went and dug all morning and then had the world's shortest lunch break and then helped students <laughs> do museum research all afternoon. So no, I have never not been some level of crew. And then I took a couple years off and Bonnie dragged me back in a couple years ago. <laughs> and the yeah. rest is graduate student history. So yeah, it's, I mean, it's great. It's kind of fun having been on this project. This was my fourth field season there Mm -hmm. and getting to kind of see it grow and change and develop. It's a lot like a kid every year. It's a little bit different and it grows up a little bit more and it gets both easier and more complex. I think. Yeah. And your, your field season out there is six weeks, right? Uh, It's actually a five week field school. Five weeks. Okay. But I, it's, it ends up being six weeks for us because there's basically, I go, basically a week early Mm -hmm. and help with setup and organization because anyone who's done a major project, I mean, both contract, but also academic, you know that you can't just walk out your door and into the field. You have to set up, get all the gear organized and cleaned and buy all the gear you're missing and rent any equipment you need to rent and go buy thousands of pin flags and, Mm -hmm. um, and just, you know, rework everything, especially if you're only in the field every other year. Yeah, it doesn't matter who's paying for it or what it's for. The logistics are high on any project. So, yeah, that's that's oh, absolutely yeah. true. Yeah. All right. Well, before we get too far, why don't you just tell us, because we've talked about Amache before on this podcast, but just in the context of just kind of let's let's get the right frame of mind for what we're going to talk about this year or, or this on this episode. What is Amache? What it, you, you mentioned in the introduction, you said Japanese Incarceration Center. Uh, what is that? What is Amache in 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 terms that everyone can understand. (laughs) Yeah. So this is a really complex moment in American history. And this is an archeological site related to that. So it's a world war II site. So it was built and inhabited from 1942 until 1945. And during world war II, a lot of, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, there was a lot of anti-Japanese hysteria. And this isn't isolated the United States has always had contentious relationships with certain immigrant groups and Asian immigrants was a lot of racism against them, especially in California and along the West coast. And so Pearl Harbor really kind of gave a moment for people to act on that racism. And they basically used the fear uh, that the Japanese Americans were potentially spies and were conducting acts of es- potentially connecting acts of espionage against the United States government and citizens to mandate that they should be evacuated, mm. which is a really euphemistic term because it makes it sound like they are in danger. Right. 
like we are evacuated from places because of danger. Really what it was, was government mandated removal of people Mm -hmm. uh, from the West Coast. And by the West Coast, I mean Washington, Oregon, the entire state of California, and then chunks stretching down into Arizona. So half of Phoenix, like the South has half below baseline. If you live in the Phoenix Valley area, uh, baseline's a major road for us. And if you lived South of baseline, you were forcibly removed from your home. Mm. And if you lived North of baseline, you were fine, which I think shows the arbitrary nature of this. If a, you know, a street can be a dividing line, a street through a major metropolitan area. (laughs) Um, right. And, So the government basically said you have X amount of time to leave your home um, and go elsewhere. But I think we can all imagine, you know, if someone said, hey, Chris, you have two weeks to shut down your business, pack up your belongings and move somewhere else. Yeah. That's not very feasible for most people, especially if you don't have friends or relations that you that live outside of the area. And a lot of the Japanese American population was concentrated on the West Coast um, because Angel Island uh, is off the coast of California. And that was the Ellis Island for Asia, mm-hmm. basically. And so immigrants were coming to the West Coast when they entered this country, just like, you know, my ancestors came in through New York and the East Coast because we were coming from Germany and Europe. And so people didn't have friends they could go join necessarily. A lot of people were involved in the agricultural industry. So you have crops planted and your money is invested in the land Mm -hmm. or you own small businesses. The Japanese American community was profitable and they were doing really well. And so a lot of people couldn't leave and move to somewhere else. And so in the end, they were basically rounded up and put into temporary detention facilities and then sent to these uh, incarceration centers Hmm. where they were in for about three years. And there are 10 of these, this is, this is a very complicated history basically. Um, And it's one that's filled with government euphemisms in an effort to kind of hide what was going on and make it sound a lot gentler than it was. Um, And there's a bunch of different kinds of, archaeological sites and historic sites related to Japanese internment or incarceration. So there are these temporary detention facilities, which were basically, they were places like the Santa Anita racetrack. If you live in California, Um, they're fairgrounds. So these were called assembly centers and they were by the government. And they're basically places where people were assembled before they were moved to more permanent facilities. Um, And they're really makeshift places, but people were there for months Mm. um, living in horse stalls and, you know, living in temporary accommodations set up on racetracks or in County fairground buildings. And then they're moved to the relocation centers for family units. So if you were a family and you had kids, you were often moved to a relocation center. And these, There's some disagreement about what to call them. Um, They're called internment centers a lot in the literature, which is sort of an intermediate phrase. 
um, that recognizes that they are not relocation centers, that this is a place where people are held. They are also called incarceration centers. And then they can also be called concentration camps because that is, or concentration centers, because that's what they are. Um, They fit that legal definition. There are barbed wire surrounding these places. There are guard towers and guards. Um, The activities and movement of people there are monitored and overseen by um, a government agency and by soldiers and members of the military. So there's a whole range of language. At Amachi, we've made a decision to call them incarceration centers Mm -hmm. rather than concentration camps or centers because in part of the communities we work with, and we can talk about that a little bit more, you know, this is kind of a cool history because it is a really cool history, not only because of what it says about our country, but because there are people still alive who we get to talk to and interact with who were there and remember the archaeological site and live it. So we try to respect that history um, and talk to them and really try to respect their voice in what we do, which is really, I mean, that's really different. As a, as an archaeologist, very rarely do you get to talk to people who used your site and knew your site. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Did that kind of cover the amazing complexity of this history? Yeah. You covered the entire history in 10 minutes. Yeah. Great. <laughs> I, I feel like I've left out a thousand things. This is actually, I mean, this is a really intense and very interesting topic. Yeah. Um, especially because it suddenly came back into the public eyesight a lot after first 9-11. Mm-hmm. And then during the early days of Donald Trump's candidacy and presidency when he's talked about Japanese incarceration and kind of implied that maybe it wasn't terrible. Mm. Yeah. So it's kind of, you know, it's, it's still a really important narrative in our country about how do we treat minority populations Mm-hmm. and, you know, racism and suspicion. Right. It is really strange being there, especially if you just go there like once. I mean, you're you're going there, you know, every other year now. So I don't know, maybe you're, quote, getting used to it. Maybe you're not. I'm not really sure. But I, I was there two years ago when you guys were out in field school just for a week. And just seeing, you know, when you're out there in Amache, there's, you know, there, there's not a lot of like standing structures or anything left. But when you see the platforms and the outlines and you kind of can imagine especially after seeing photographs, like what it looked like there, you know, your first thought is, man, I mean, is this, you know, Germany, (laughs) but no, this is the United States. We're in freaking Colorado. And this is, this happened right here, you know, and it's just crazy to think about that. One of the things to think of, well, there's two components to that too, is when I say I'm going to go do field research in Colorado, people are like, oh, wow, but I'm not going to to Western Colorado, which is what everyone thinks about when you think about Colorado, like mountains and canyons. I'm basically in Kansas. Like these are the high plains. Amache is actually built on a sand dune. Mm -hmm. The site is built on a giant sand dune and the buildings are military barracks. Like they're meant to be temporary structures. They're not meant to have families. Mm -hmm. Um, And you have, you know, people who range from newborns to 99 year olds. Right. living here and then the size of it too i mean there's about 7000 to 9000 people living at amachi ma'am this isn't a couple hundred people this is thousands of people um there's about 100,000 japanese americans both citizens and legal residents of mm-hmm. this country who were rounded up and imprisoned by our government and so we've been doing archaeological research there now this was our 10th anniversary year Mm -hmm. It was very exciting in a kind of 
terrifying way that we've been there for 10 years. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's been a long, it's been a long haul. Well, b- before we get into what you did this year, since we've only got a couple minutes left in this segment, uh, let me ask a, a couple questions that came up in my mind while you were uh, given the history of the site there. So in some areas, were there, uh, you know, you, you mentioned the somewhat arbitrary nature of, of who got selected to go there or who got forced to go there. I shouldn't say selected, like it was a, you know, a prize they won. <laughs> it's an honor, yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. I, I'm a, I would imagine there were whole households and, and even neighborhoods in some areas of the country that were selected to go to one of the Japanese um, incarceration camps around the country. And, you know, if that were the case, you know, when they when this was all over and they, they more than likely probably went back home to where they, to where they were taken from. I mean, what happened to their like houses and property and things like that? If it was whole neighborhoods or even whole households and things like that, you know, did they have to sell their property? Did they, were they able to go back? Was somebody else living there? You know, I mean, what do, do you have any stories based around that? I mean, yeah. Oh, there's thousands. I mean, there's a hundred thousand stories around that. Uh, one for each person. Sure. And it varies. I mean, it varies hugely based on the nature of property ownership. Mm -hmm. It was illegal for non-citizens to own property Mm. if you were Asian American. So so a lot of first-generation immigrants didn't necessarily own their property. They were renting or they owned it in their kids' names, which is – you know, mm. incredibly useful um, because then they can maintain property. But if you're renting it, you're going to lose your rent, your lease probably. Um, if you're really lucky, so it's it's really complicated because it ba- it's based on each family's an original fine like personal finances and mm-hmm. friendship ties. You know, maybe you're really good friends with a neighbor and they're willing to watch your farm and they're willing to mm. kind of run your farm for you while you're gone, and then you can come back and take it back over. Maybe you let a neighbor watch your farm and they end up taking all of your stuff. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, there's a lot of stories of, I think it was one of the Buddhist temples, people put a lot of their stuff in storage there. And in the end, somebody broke in and stole it or buildings are burned. So people, you know, a lot of people lost everything. Okay. For a lot of people who are small, families who are small business owners or farmers or leasing you know, that set them back financially. One gentleman I was talking to, his family had been establishing an orchard. Mm-hmm. So they'd been doing kind of uh, farming small crops that they could sell while their orchard was being established. And it was their first year that they were going to get a harvest out of their orchard. Hmm. But they lost it. Jeez. And they lost the harvest and the land that they'd spent, you know, years preparing and growing. But if you can't pay taxes because there wasn't, there weren't job opportunities really. Right. So it's, yeah, it's a really complicated story of personal loss and hardship mm-hmm. that impacted. I mean, I think that's one of the things is this is in history that it has a moment of impact, right? These three years that people were imprisoned, but the impact continues on for generations in a way. Hmm. And it's still, you know, it's still being fat, felt both in terms of kind of an emotional legacy. I mean, imagine if your family were basically told that, they didn't have like the rights that all other American citizens have. Right. But then also, you know, there's financial loss. So, well, on that note, uh, let's take our first break. And when we come back, I want to talk about what your guys' goals were for this year. And we'll talk about that on the other side of the break. Back in a second. Some places take you away. 
Some bring you together. Marathon does both. Marathon is Florida's family key with something for everyone. You'll find museums and wildlife refuges, wide open beaches, miles of warm, clear water, and the historic Seven Mile Bridge. For more about Marathon and the latest safety protocols, visit flakeys.com slash marathon. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And we're back to episode 46 of the Archaeology Show, and we're talking about April's field school this year at Amache Japanese Incarceration Center in southeastern Colorado. So, uh, April, you mentioned in the last episode that it's, this was you guys' 10-year anniversary of going out there. So you've covered a lot of ground over the, the weeks that you've been out there. Uh, what were your objectives this year? Because if people don't know, even on, you know, whether it's professional archaeology, you know, contract archaeology, or academic archaeology, you always have questions that you're trying to answer. Maybe it's questions held over from last year. Maybe it's brand new questions. But what sorts of questions were you trying to answer uh, this year with your research? Yeah, so it, it's kind of cool. We have one continuing question, which is really about life. What was life like in Amachi and community? Mm-hmm. So you know, this is really my soapbox episode, apparently. Uh, <laughs> and I'm really enjoying it. But one of the things that's interesting about these incarceration centers is how did people form new communities? How did they modify the landscape? We talked about how this is like the high plains and Amachi's built on a sand dune, but there are gardens everywhere and beautiful landscaping features. And Bonnie has been working and researching the garden. So as part of the field school, right, our key, our key goal every field season is to teach students to be good archaeologists. I mean, that is the goal of a field school. Right. And so to do that, we want to do teach them both to do survey. So understand what archaeological survey is, um, because when you do contract work, that's a lot of what you do is walk. Mm-hmm. And we want them to be prepared for that lifestyle, right? Uh, <laughs> And then we also do excavation. And so the excavation research has focused around gardens and how did residents at Amache modify the landscape, both to make it more hospitable, because by building gardens, you're kind of claiming a space and you're you're making it home. You know, you're making this incarceration center someplace that you can live and maybe don't want to live. Um, but, you know, it's. People talk about things like this as a form of resistance. So you're resisting the government um, and what's being done. But I think it's also sometimes a sense of a a form of ownership. You know, you're claiming this space. You're saying, all right, fine, we're here. Let's make it ours. Let's make it our community. And one of the questions that Bonnie's been asking is how are people using kind of existing knowledge, um, incorporating both American and Japanese style gardening techniques? How are they modifying the land? Um, We talk about at Amache, we treat the soil as an artifact. Um, Hmm. So we do flotation and soil chemistry and pollen um, and, you know, 
we want to know how are people changing the soils in these gardens. And so, and actually there is going to be a fabulous book. Bonnie's book on this is going to be coming out pretty soon. Ooh, yeah, nice. I know. It's only, it's, you know, it's 10 years of research uh, in this fabulous go. book form. We'll have so, to get her on this podcast to talk about that book. Oh, yeah. That, this is my yeah. pre-plug for her book um, <laughs> that is not yet published yet. And then nice. my research was the survey component. And so one of the things that I got have been really interested in is community and how did people, how do people form communities? So this is a broad kind of anthropological question is how do we come together and form communities? And for me, one of the questions is what role does the physical environment play in this? So Mm -hmm. having places where we can come together and do things with each other, um, what allows us to both create those places and then encourages us to use those spaces. And so we, have been doing archaeological survey of the residential areas and looking for community features. So Mm -hmm. are there public gardens and areas where people were doing things together? And so I, we surveyed three residential blocks this summer. Um, So let me back up for a second. When I say residential blocks, Amache is constructed. There's an administrative area. Mm -hmm at the north end of the site, which is where kind of the hospital is, um, the government buildings, housing for government employees. And then the south half of the site is divided into these residential blocks, um, which are basically neighborhoods. And in each residential block, there are 12 military barracks that have been subdivided into apartments. So each barrack has Mm -hmm. six apartments um, and that's where families were housed. So each family got one apartment. Um, the largest of which I, which I think is like 20 feet by 20 feet. Mm, Jesus. Um, and the smallest is 12 by 20. Wow. So, yep. Move your family into one of those. Uh, and think about yeah. that. Yeah. Before we leave that real quick, were, were, were people allowed to, were they assigned like a space in a building and they couldn't move, they couldn't do anything? Or did they all reload, relocate themselves based on relationships and friendships and things like that once they got there? It's a combination. So when you arrive... Okay you're often assigned where to go, especially in the beginning when there's lots of people coming. Um, But within that people exert some agency, like you get in, you get assigned often based on who you arrive with. So if you show up with other people from your neighborhood, you're probably going to be put in the same area as your former neighbors. Um, Mm, So we see residential blocks that are almost all people from LA or residential blocks where there are seven apartments with the same last name and they're all related. Right. Right. Some, you know, it's uncles, aunts, grandparents, all living, have managed to kind of live next to each other. But at the same time, other times people get completely split up. Mm -hmm. One gentleman we were talking to this summer, his family arrived later and they were put with their family. Um, they had mm. relatives at Amache, and that's part of why they came to Amache later is to be with those relatives. And they were the administration housed them in the same block as their family members. And he said they were really surprised by that. Like they didn't expect that to happen. Mm-hmm. But this is also Wait, something. Wait, they, they went to Amache willingly to be with their family or they were going to a Japanese center and they requested? Yeah, they were in another yeah. incarceration center and they tr- requested a transfer. Okay. To be with family. That makes more sense. Yeah. Yes. No, I, yeah. very few people went willingly. <laughs> right. 
but this is something that also varies there. So there are these 10 of these incarceration, incarceration centers and each one is really different mm-hmm. um, in terms of its nature. And it's partly dependent on the personality of the administrators. And right. it seems like Amachi is one of the nicer places to be in terms of who's mm. running it. So that's something we always kind of keep in the back of our minds. Um, yeah. Is not all of these. These are not all the same. Um, it's not a universal yeah. experience. But yeah, so then in these neighborhoods are these apartments and then there are communal facilities. So there's a communal mess hall where everybody goes to eat and there's a communal bathing facility um, and wash house, which is segregated mm-hmm. by gender. And that's all located in the center. And then there's a recreation hall, which has different activities and kind of community facilities. So that's the general layout. And so we walk these neighborhoods. So we pick one of these residential blocks or a couple of them every year, and we do a really intensive pedestrian survey. Um, so you're going to laugh at this, Chris. We walk with a two-meter spacing. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's tight. Yeah. So anyone who's done survey anywhere else, the normal is like, 10 to 15 meter spacing, maybe. Or, or even 30. Yeah. yeah. So we do two meters. In part, because 30 meters, we'd have covered the whole site in like a day. Right. Yeah. But we also want to find every garden that we can, as many of the surface artifacts as we can. So we're doing a really intensive sampling of each neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get, I mean, we have incredibly high resolution data, which is really cool because it allows us to compare neighborhoods to each other. So one of the questions I'm asking is, are there differences in neighborhoods where everybody's from LA or everybody's from some of these rural farming communities versus neighborhoods where it's sort of a mix of people, you know, they're from LA and they're from Hawaii and they're from Oregon and they're from 30 different towns spread across California. Does that change how you interact with the people you live with? Mm Mm-hmm. Because if you think about modern neighborhoods, there's some neighborhoods where everybody is middle class and they all drive the same cars and they all work in the same kinds of industries. And then there's neighborhoods like the one that I live in where everybody is completely different from everybody else. So what Hmm. does that mean for how we interact with each other as neighbors? Right. So those are kind of our research questions that we're driving this year. Well, what based on, I mean, I know you've got months of analysis to go and your brain is still fried from, you know, just the actual frying with the heat, but also, you know, just the, the massive amount of concentration and focus you have to, to run a field school like that and just do those things. But what's your sense of any new or reaffirmed discoveries or things like that that you made this year? Okay. So this is again, super dorky. Um, (laughs) The block that I was in charge of surveying is actually mm-hmm. the very first block that we ever surveyed Amache in 2008. So we mm. resurveyed a neighborhood. Okay. Which you never get to go back and reanalyze a site. Like it's very rare, right? Right, right. Because time and money. But what we realized is the first block, I'll be honest, we knew what we were doing because we're archaeologists and we're good at our jobs. But the first time you walk onto a site or do work in a region for the very first time, you don't know what there is, right? Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to re and we changed our survey method um, after that block. And so that block had sort of become data that wasn't comparable anymore. Okay. And so we wanted to resurvey it. 
So we got to resurvey it, which is super cool. And I got to resurvey it. So it's the same person resurveying the same place 10 years (laughs) apart. Nice. You see why I said this is super dorky, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But really fun. Yeah. (laughs) And so what's neat is we're finding some of the same artifacts in basically the same locations, but we can also see how every year that we were out there, we learned more about how to identify landscape features. Mm -hmm. So how do you find a garden? Because sometimes these gardens, I mean, they're made out of wood sometimes. So how do you find the remains of a wooden garden? Right. Um, And so our eyes have developed so much and we're so much better at seeing these things because we've done these archaeological excavations that tell us that when you see little crumbled pieces of cedar on the surface, that means that there's a garden below the surface. Hmm. Because nice. we excavated a garden and there was all of this cedar planking. Okay. And so we've kind of built this repertoire over time. Um, so that's one of the cool things is getting to resurvey this garden and or this whole neighborhood and think about how much do artifacts move? Like how much are artifacts really moving around on the surface of the site? And then also to think about how much does working in a site over time change your ability to really understand and interpret the data? Mm-hmm. And now we have can kind of quantify that. And then, yeah, we just have some, I think we have some cool results about how much the neighborhoods that we were looking at, all three were really mixed. So there are people from all over California and from kind of different rural and urban backgrounds. And they have some really cool communal features that they are agreeing to construct and build and use. So there's some really neat data. Hmm. Yeah. It's always really exciting. Nice. And nice. yeah, so I'm looking forward to getting time to actually sit down and analyze, which is part of why we do the field school every two years is so that yeah. we have one year where we collect data and then we have time to actually analyze and process the data to produce reports um, because we're really connected with the communities that we work with and we want them mm-hmm. to be able to see what we're doing and know that we're not just hoarding all of this data and it's sort of sitting there, <laughs> but that it's actually getting used and we're generating things from it. Yeah, that's always a concern with um, really communities that you're working with, especially like descending communities and stuff like that. In this case, primary community for you guys, but uh, in some cases. But yeah, they're always like, well, this is great and all that you're doing this, but it's kind of our history. So what are you doing with it? You know, they want to make sure you're you're not doing anything nefarious or, or being disrespectful. Yeah, which is so, really important. Yeah, it's good to know. Yeah. So speaking of data, it's my turn to geek out. So four years ago, somehow I got connected with Bonnie uh, when I was using the app Tapforms for uh, uh, for iPad and, and iPhone and helped put together like a photo recording module that you guys could use. And I don't know, I think it was used a little bit that year. I'm not really sure. But uh, in either way, it was Tapforms. So it was kind of like what I had at the time. And I don't think it was the best thing in the planet, but it worked better than, you know, not recording <laughs> digitally. <laughs> But then last year, I spent a week out there at Amache um, with Michael Ashley and we were with Codify and built like a recording application pretty much on site. I mean, we had something constructed, but then we're like on site making tweaks to it as you guys were 
we're using it. So what was your what was your recording method this year? You're collecting an amazing amount of data. So and, and you have to do it quickly and efficiently so you can actually know what you collected when you get back out, you know, from the field and, and back into the office. Um, what were your data recording methods this year? Did you go back to Codify or did you do something else? Well, okay. So first, tap form, the tap forms you developed for us, we completely and utterly used endlessly in 2014 because <laughs> it was highly superior to all the paper forms. Nice. Yeah. Paper photo logs are what drives archaeologists to digital. Just saying. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And the process, I mean, two years ago when we developed the Codify database, I mean, that was it was phenomenal. The, yeah. So we, one of the things we do when we're surveying is we tally artifacts. We want to know how many like pieces of Mason jar we have out there and how many barrel hoops. And Mm -hmm. so we we literally had sheets of paper with set categories of the things that we always find. And then we just wrote in other things. And Mm -hmm. so the tally system is great because it gives us kind of this overview of all of the artifacts in a neighborhood but with the codify, we could actually say, here is where it is. Like what was really cool about what you'd helped us develop, Chris, is it was geolocated, which, yeah. it, I mean, it's cool that we could see the geolocation of every single piece of broken glass out there. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of kept using that this year just because it's really hard once you commit to a system to switch over. Oh, and absolutely. in my point of yeah. view, anything is better than access. so i would sell my soul to any devil if they promised that they would give me a database that was not in access um right (laughs) yeah yeah um yeah it's horrific yeah yeah so we kept using it and that's really cool because i I remember i think that was one of my major contributions of course michael was doing all the all the coding and really creating the application but i was thinking man if we're allowed to you know, every time we hit this little image here or or whatever the case may be to tally something, if the system could actually just record that tap and record the location data with that tap, then we could re- we could see that. Because that's, that's always been my frustration on sites, too. I don't know how many archaeology sites I've recorded where there was a datum and a, and a site boundary and nothing else listed on there because you don't generally take locations mm-hmm. on things that aren't diagnostic. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it's just nothing. You know, you could have a few flakes and, and that's it, but no points or a few shards of, of glass and no diagnostic bases or, or, you know, anything like that. So there's really nothing on the site record, but you guys were able to record everything and all of its locations. And I think ideally every archaeologist would want to do that. It just hasn't been the technological feasibility for actually making that happen and no time to actually go around with the GPS and, and sit there and record every single location. So, you know, the the sort of rough location that the iPad gives you is good enough for that non-diagnostic oh, stuff. Yeah. And as with any databases, you know, we always have some problems and there's weird glitches and things because you build something mm-hmm. in a sterile environment, then you take it in the field and anything will break and everything will break because um, archaeologists just break things. Um, but, you know, the very last day of the field season, so we put out a lot of pin flags and we don't want to leave them. I mean, it's garbage. You don't mm-hmm. want to litter your archaeological yeah. site. And so we go back out and we have the field students with us and we we walk over our site again and we pick up all of the pin flags and clean up our site and collect you know, yeah. blown in paper bags and garbage that has collected over the two years. And as we were doing this, we found a 1940s little rubber ball, um, like a hmm. rubber bouncy ball. And I mean, that's super yeah. cool. We happen to have one of the cellular enabled iPads with us and we're able to pop open the database, 
we tapped it. We took the location of this artifact. We took a photo of the artifact. We created an artifact record, did an, an analysis of the artifact with measurements. It took me five minutes and we fully recorded this artifact that otherwise nice. in the past we would have been like, that's so cool. Oh, well, too bad. We found it on the very last day. <laughs> Guess that's lost yeah. data, but now it's not. I mean, the power of that is something that's just, I mean, and it's not just codify like any, I mean, obviously we use codify, um, but there's lots of other systems that are developing and it's just the growing power of digital and being able to go digital yeah. with our paperwork and being able to go into the field with cellular enabled iPads and even your cell phone uh, and having these amazing, it's just the technology that's developing for archaeology is just incredible. Yeah. And that, that I think is the big takeaway there. Cause you're right. There are, I mean, e even if you don't look at things specifically made for archaeology, there's probably 50 different ways to just record mm -hmm. stuff digitally. You know, some are more efficient than others. But then some people are are actually making things for archaeology, bringing stuff in from other industries. And the point is, that's where it's at. That's if you want to correct, if you want to record the most amount of data in the most efficient way and then have flexibility to do different things like you just did. I mean, the only way to really do that is is digital. You know, the, the paper based systems are too too limiting and too clumsy, uh, quite frankly. So um, anyway, all right. Well, a longer conversation on that might be uh, in store for the Archaeotech podcast. We'll have to talk about that. <laughs> so um, I know, I know. So let's uh, call the end of this segment. And when we come back from our break, uh, we'll talk about what takes place now that you're out of the field and, and what where these, where these data go from there. So back in a second. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, welcome back to episode 46 of the Archaeology Show. And April and I are talking about her field school experience this year at Amache. And now we're going to talk about what you do after the field. You guys collected an amazing amount of data. So what are what are the next steps now that everybody's kind of back and, and maybe your field gear's cleaned? Maybe it's still sitting in the car. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, maybe maybe it's sitting in the garage. Who knows where it's at? But, you know, what are the what are the next steps? What do you do now? Our first next step is to write a report. So the first thing we do every year is we do a short report that basically says, here's what we did this summer. Here are the results from each block that we surveyed. Here's the results from the excavation units. 
Um, and obviously these are preliminary results because we haven't gotten things like the, you know, mm-hmm. the archaeobotany analysis back or the pollen analysis or the soil chem analysis, things like that. And we haven't done the analysis, but it's a quick overview. And it says, this is what we accomplished. And this mm-hmm. is what we send out to our granting agencies. Um, and then this is also what we send out to community supporters. Okay. So that way we're telling them like, here's what we did. And we're kind of keeping our public informed. So that's our very first step. Um, And we like to do that soon after we get back from the field because we use crew chiefs who are master's students and they may be doing research at Amache and they may not. Actually, one of our crew chiefs is a PhD student too. Um, Sorry. Do a shout out for her too. Um, (laughs) But we're often using University of Denver students, master's students, because it's a training program for them. And so we want that written report of what we did while our memories are fresh. And then we spend the next two years and we, Bonnie has a historic archeology span class and they analyze all the artifacts that we collected um, during survey and excavation. And we start analyzing all of the data from the survey to start thinking about what it's telling us. Um, and for me, answering my dissertation research questions. And we also start planning for the next field season. I mean, it's two years away, but it takes us a while. We want to make sure that we've kind of done all the preliminary research that we want to do. We've made contacts in the community. We've gone through the historic resources to kind of gather the background data on the areas we're going to be surveying or Mm -hmm. excavating. And one of the things that Bonnie has really been good about is, so she started this project basically in 2005, about three years before we actually excavated and did survey and did our first field school. And she started by working with the communities. So both the community of Grenada, where the site is located, that's the town nearby, and they own the land. And and they have a high school-run preservation organization that protects the site and runs a museum. So she started working with them and talking to them about what their needs were. But then she also has been trying to work very closely and has been working really closely with both the former attorney and the descendant community. So these are people who were at Amache, who had family at Amache. And their voices are very important. And without their support, none of this would be possible. And we wouldn't want to do it. Okay. And so she's worked really hard on getting them engaged with the project, talking to them, making sure that the language we use. So part of why we say incarceration center um, is because of some of the feedback we've gotten, Mm -hmm. both from the local community, the town, but also our Japanese American community for our site. So this is not universal language. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, she, we go to California and we meet with people. Um, we give presentations for local groups. We go to major national conferences, so archaeology conferences, and we present on what we're researching and what our findings are. We work every year. We have interns. So we have one intern at least who's from the local preservation society, so grew up and lives in Grenada. And then we have one or two interns who are from the descendant community, um, so whose grandparents were at Amachi normally. Okay. And so we work to find those interns in the intervening years. So this is kind of fun because every it's a continuing process. Like we're never not working on the field school, even <laughs> though we're only in the field for five weeks. So Right. Well, that that makes sense. It, it must be even more difficult when it's every two years rather than every year because you've got to kind of like write down these ideas and observations for what to do next year, like throughout as you go along. But I mean, you'll just forget them if you don't, right? I mean, unless they're oh, yeah. earth shattering and huge. But yeah, you got to kind of keep that running tally of well, let's make sure we do this next year, and you know, 
Yes. Uh, 23 <laughs> months go by and you're out there again. <laughs> um, there's definitely a certain amount of that where we look at each other and we go, oh, yeah, that is why we decided not to do this again. Oh, right. We were going to change this. Hmm. Oh, uh, let's look yeah. back to our notes. So we always do that before we head back into the field. But mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that we've tried really hard is to make this a very community engaged project. Mm-hmm. And that's actually the part that is the hardest and the most absolute, most rewarding. Like mm-hmm. all of our field school students have noted that having volunteers who were at Amache or have a connection to Amache, having the local high school students, it changes their field experience and their understanding of the history. And it, it drives the research that we do and helps inform it. But it, it takes more work because you can't just say, oh, shoot, it's two months before the field school. I'd better email all of my like community partners. Um, mm-hmm. We have to keep doing that for the two years in between. And we want to keep doing that. So, you know, we're involved in different groups and organizations and community uh, committees about the preservation of the site. Um, and just we're always talking to people, which is really important. And really mm-hmm. fun. I mean, it is nice. when I wasn't going to this for my dissertation. So every year we have two, um, we have a community day, which is for the former attorney and descendant community. And we have people who come from California and come out sometimes for the very first time since 1945 nice. to see the site. And then we also have a public open house day. And that's for people who live in the area um, to kind of raise their awareness of what Amachi is and why it's important and what we're doing out there and who the weird people living in campers in the park are. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. True story. And, um, but you know, that community day watching people and talking to people is what pulled me back into the project and made me decide to do it for my dissertation is kind of the love of the community that this site is part of more than, the site itself, if that makes sense. Although I am deeply in love with the site because when you right. work someplace for a long time, you get sort of attached. Yeah. Did you uh, did you march march in the parade again this year? Oh, we did. We every year we get to nice. march in Grenada Bristol Days, and they which is the local town festival, and they announce us, and we get to throw candy to local kids. <laughs> and yep, we march in our field school T shirts. It's really really fun. Nice. It's a surprisingly uh, well attended and and good sized parade for such a small town. <laughs> oh yeah, it's great. Yeah. Um, and the festival in the park, uh, which goes till midnight, uh, when you have to work the next morning, is less exciting. But uh, <laughs> it, nice. it's really fun. Um, highly recommend yeah. it if you are ever in southeastern Colorado, the second week of June. Mm-hmm. Stop by that one. There you go. And, and check out Amache if you're on a year that they're, uh, you know, uh, apparently even numbered years is when you're yes, out there. Always even point. numbers. Yeah. Always even numbers. So, so where I know you, uh, you record and analyze some artifacts in the field, but you do collect the occasional, um, the occasional thing. Where do the artifacts and all your field notes and research and, and, and you're collecting things digitally now. So there's a, there's a electronic database. Uh, who is the, custodian of all these data once you're quote done with it you know what i mean you you've written the report yeah you know you probably have records and copies of things but who's the custodian of the original data who keeps all that stuff when you're done with it so currently everything that we collect is housed at the university of denver okay while the project's ongoing um and that includes so every field school each student who is taking it as a class has to keep a field journal 
Mm -hmm. Um, and this is part of getting them used to keeping a field journal and we collect them at the end of every field school. So we have 10 years of student field journals um, of varying quality and phenomenalness. Um, (laughs) I I mean, they're always good, but you know, you always have that one student who writes down like imperfect, meticulous detail, everything. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's the journal you go to when you forgot to write something (laughs) down. Yeah. Yeah. So we have all, I mean, we have from that to our paper and forms to the random sheets of paper that you scribble random things on. Mm-hmm. So anything that we think we need to keep right now is housed at the University of Denver, including the things we do collect. So what we collect is primarily excavation um, from excavation, because obviously when you dig it up, it has to go somewhere. Right. Um, although this field season, we did get permission to do some curation in situ. Oh my. Which is super exciting. Yeah. Um, and so we got permission to leave all of the nails behind. How how do you do that when they're basically pulled out of context when you're excavating? So one of the things is we most of the nails are from the buildings that were there. Mm-hmm. And so we did in so we obviously when we're excavating, you are collecting the nails and we took them back to the field lab and we uh, analyzed them. So we took their penny weights and we analyzed whether they were clinched or bent or straight and we photographed all of them, which is really, I mean, for nails, that's pretty much the data you need, right? Yeah. Yeah. Not a lot more data on the nail. (laughs) Yeah. And then we put, wrapped them in landscaping fabric, which we know from past experience holds up really well Mm -hmm. in that environment. So we made them little landscaping fabric bags and we included metal tags with their provenience information. And we buried them uniformly in the southwest corner of all of our excavation units. Man, I would I would love to go on an excavation and dig up all my artifacts already cataloged and tagged. That would be fantastic. (laughs) That'd be nice. I know. Somebody goes back there in 10 years. (laughs) I mean, this is a really neat thing that a lot of places in Europe are starting to do, especially Mm -hmm. uh, waterlogged sites. Yeah. Because when you dig up a submerged piece of wood, the cost Mm. of stabilizing it is just exponential yeah but if you can analyze it and document it and then resubmerge it in a known location where it could be recovered i mean that's better for its preservation in the end right right and i mean metal artifacts are also really hard to curate because they're consist they're constantly degrading basically yeah Yeah. and so bonnie worked really closely with the state um and got permission to do this so this is really and it saves a ton of museum space and let's face it Students who've taken a historic class where you have to analyze a bag of nails. We literally had a unit that produced an entire three paper bags of nails. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they're cheering. Cheering. Yeah. I hear it. Um, <laughs> so, nice. I mean, it was really great. But we keep all of those artifacts. And part of why we've been working on this is eventually all of the artifacts go back to the museum at Amachi. And mm-hmm. it's small. Yeah. It's not a giant palatial space, but it's nice to be able to keep artifacts with the site they come from. Mm-hmm. You know, these aren't going to be in California. They're not going to be in Denver. Um, ideally these artifacts all return and they live nearby where they came from. And so we're constantly working with the community and it's part of why we don't, when we do archeological survey, we don't collect very much. Um, and that has two reasons. One is this is a heritage site and we want people to be able to come out to the site and find a marble. Yeah. 
and see those material remains of people's lives because that's what makes archaeology real. And let's face it, we don't need to collect the like 100 marbles we have found in Amachi because every marble is mass produced. Mm. And we've taken photographs and we've done a measurement to make sure that this is indeed a mass produced glass marble of the standard like three quarter inch diameter. And we've taken a GPS point on its location. Hmm. Okay. And that's really, I mean, that's great data. Yeah. But then we've had experiences. We go out with someone and we go to the apartment and the barrack they lived in and they find a marble and it's like, oh, yeah. It's it's those tangible objects and touching those objects that pulls people back into the past in a way and helps connect them to the lives of people who were incarcerated at our site. Mm-hmm. And so if we pick them all up and we put them all in a museum, then that's, that's gone. Right. Right. I, and then that poor museum is stuck curating a <laughs> hundred marbles. Um, yeah. Yeah. There are buildings full of glass and uh, tin cans here in Nevada. I'm sure of it. So yeah, we don't need oh, to keep oh, all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. All right. So, uh, we just got a few minutes left here. Um, I'm wondering, you, you've mentioned the survivors of Amache. I mean, there were people that were really young when they went there, and uh, and and they're still they're still around and have memories of the place. And then there's descendants of the people that are no longer around um, who you know have memories of probably being told stories and things like that. What does the survivor survivor community uh, think about your work in Amache specifically? Well, the people that we hear from are largely supportive. Mm-hmm. Um, and we try really hard to connect with them. Um, I mean, Bonnie is just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. At this. Like, truly phenomenal. I mean, the hardest thing about community engaged archeology span is engaging with your community and staying engaged with your community. Yeah. Um, and that involves sending letters and thank you notes and little cards just to check in on how people are doing. And, um, yeah, so we've received we receive a lot of positive feedback and support and a lot of really good questions that challenge what we are doing and the assumptions that we are making. Every year we have ideas about how things worked or functioned and then someone says something to us. So someone this field school was visiting, she's like, "Oh yeah," or her brother was like, "Oh, and there was a road that ran between these two neighborhoods." Hmm. And his sister was like, no, it was an alley. And, but all of a sudden we're like, oh my God, there are alleys. <laughs> there are alleys. Like we kind of thought there might be, yeah. but now like there are alleys. And so then we went back and we looked at places again that we've looked at before and we're like, yeah, that weird dip, that weird depression. That's yeah. right where there's supposed to be an alley and right where original plans say there might, there was going to, there was a proposed road that was never built. Mm-hmm. And they became these informal alleys. And, um, yep, well, let's go back and rewrite that section. Yeah, um, makes you wonder about every prehistoric site you've ever seen and the interpretations made there, doesn't no. it? <laughs> I mean, this is the thing when you work with a community of people who lived at a place is you can have all of these dreams and ideas of what life was like and how the site looked and functioned. Yeah. And then you find a historic photograph or someone says one word to you and all of your presuppositions just crumble right. apart and you have to go back to square one 
But it, I mean, as an archaeologist and a researcher, it makes, it's more powerful and mm-hmm. it makes your research endlessly better. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, we overall, we get a lot of positive feedback and we want to keep it that way. If people are not supportive of what we're doing, especially as a community as a whole, then, you know, should we be doing our research? And I think that's a question that all archaeologists kind of struggle with when they're descendant communities is if the descendant community doesn't like what you're doing, are you asking the right questions? Right. right. And should you be going about your research this way? Indeed. So. Okay. Well, I think there's really just time for two more really quick questions. First off, you're, you've mentioned a few times and, and over the year we've been doing this podcast that you're almost two years actually, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. yeah. Cause we started a few months after Amache last time. So we did. So anyway, in the almost two years we've been doing this podcast, you've been working on your dissertation at some point in the future, you're probably going to be finished. I mean, I don't know when that is. <laughs> People work on dissertations for a really long time, but at some point you're going to be finished. So what's your future at, uh, at Amache? Are you going to be there next time? Or do you think you're going to be, even if you're done with your dissertation, are you going to keep going out as long as you can? Oh man, I am hoping I will be there next time. I'm hoping I will be just finishing mm-hmm. or just finished. So we'll cross our fingers <laughs> there. But asking when someone's finishing their dissertation <laughs> is exactly like asking a woman her age or right. weight. Right. Um, or I was trying to dance around it. <laughs> <laughs> Deeply rude, Chris. Deeply rude. Um, <laughs> I don't mind. My husband asks me every other day. I'm sure he does. Um, yeah. But. I don't know. I'd like to stay involved because it's an amazing, amazing project and I really enjoy it, mm-hmm. but you know, it all depends on the job market. If you, yeah. if I move out of academia, I mean, I stopped going for two years cause I worked at a national trust site and some reason they weren't willing to give me f- six weeks off every <laughs> summer during event season for the museum to go. And I yeah. wasn't sure why. Um, yeah. So hopefully I get to keep working there and doing research in some capacity. Um, At the very least, I'll finish my dissertation and then we'll have to publish like six years worth of writing and articles and things like that on it. Mm -hmm. So that, I mean, anytime you collect data on a site, especially a heritage site, you need to make that data public. Right. Right. So, so one last thing, you brought your kids out on the field school and, and you're no, you're no real stranger to that. I mean, you grew up on your, your parents' field schools. So, um, how was that for you this year? Did you have uh, somebody to take care of them while you're out in the field? I mean, how did, I mean, you must have obviously. So how did that, uh, how did that work? I did. I had two of the most amazing girls ever. Mm -hmm. Uh, their mother, Cheryl is the home economics teacher and like six other teaching positions at the local high school. And she cooks for us in the summer and hooked me up with her daughters who are college age and phenomenal. And they watched the boys during the day for me. And then we lived in a pop-up camper Mm. kindly loaned to me by a fellow archeologist outside of the building. And let me tell you twins in a (laughs) pop-up camper. I thought it was going to be a nightmare and it was like, I will say the experience was one of the hardest things I've done mm-hmm. in a long time, but probably one of the most rewarding. Nice. It's one of those challenges you set yourself. And then once you achieve it, you were like, yes, yes. But I will also say that I couldn't have done it if I didn't have the support of the project director. And then all of our field school students and our volunteers and my co-crew chiefs were like total rock stars. Mm-hmm. And when I was distracted, they, 
either kept my kids mildly happy or prevented them from dying. Mm-hmm. And like, that's, that's what you need as a parent is sometimes for someone else to be like, Oh, Hey, small creature, <laughs> let's not leave the building unattended. Come back this right. way. So having a kid in field school is definitely a community endeavor. And yeah, I'm yeah. endlessly thankful for the community this summer that let me do this and made it vaguely sane. Vaguely sane, yeah. It's great that you were you were able to do that and even more awesome that you had the support of your um, your colleagues out there and the community because that's one of the that's one of the big quality of life issues with cultural resource management. I mean, a, a lot of people, especially unfortunately women because they're often tasked with, you know, raising the children when it's just as much the man's responsibility as well. But, uh, you know, women will often just get out of archaeology because they don't have the time anymore and they'll have to do something else where they can be local because they don't have that support structure within basically field archaeology. I'm not talking about the people that have kids when they're, you know, like at a at a job and they're, they're maybe a PI or something like that. They're not going in the field very much, but but fa- traveling field archaeologists, there's just zero support structure in the field, either from the industry itself or from, you know, just their colleagues that are right there uh, or from the company they're working for. You know, so so people are kind of discouraged from having children in contract archaeology just because maybe it's not directly discouraged, but at least inadvertently discouraged because there is no support structure and you want to keep doing this job. You, you're either going to have to yeah. have somebody in the field with you that can work from a hotel room and an internet connection and then help raise the kids or, or just not have them at all. And that's unfortunate. So hopefully, hopefully we're turning the corner. I know it's a long corner to turn, but hopefully we're turning that a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> you're at least helping with that. No. And it's a corner that's not isolated to our, for sure, our profession either. I yeah. think it's just the way our professional worlds are structured. It's, it's really hard to um, have kids. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, but I I was lucky, and this was a amazing community, and I had at least one student who asked me about it and was like, it's really exciting to see you here mm-hmm. with the kids because I want to get a PhD, and I worry about having a family and being an academic and a professional. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's definitely something people think about. Yeah. But it was wonderful, and I hope uh, that they – won't necessarily remember the experience, but they will have sort of that underlying memory of all of these that people are just nice and will kind of watch after. They were raised by a community this summer, which is something that a lot of American children, I think, can miss out on. Yeah. Well, if if their mother is anything like their grandparents, I'm guessing this won't be their last field school. So... (laughs) You know, I hope not. And I will say when they are three, they're old enough to join the Bob Kittens Jr. cheerleading camp nice. in Grenada. And I'm, uh, you know, carefully eyeing that as a future nice. career for them. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. All right. Well, that was a, an amazing synopsis of, you know, uh, it only took an hour to discuss basically five weeks of a field school and <laughs> entire history of a population. So, you know, there you go. <laughs> I think we covered all of it, but no, if you have any other questions, feel free to, you know, send an email to the contact in the show notes at arcpodnet.com forward slash archaeology forward slash 46 for this episode. Although our contact is in there for, for every episode. I think it's just my email address, but if it's something, you know, for April, I'll, I'll obviously forward it on to her. So if you have any other questions, but anyway, thanks a lot, April, for, uh, for kind of being the guest uh, co-host on today's episode and we'll have some regular episodes coming up. 
Hey, anytime you give me a chance to get on my so- <laughs> soapbox, I'm more than willing to. And uh, thanks for letting me do it. And I'm sorry I missed three whole episodes. Uh, so I'm glad to be back. And I'm excited for the upcoming year. There you go. There you go. All right. Well, again, thanks a lot, April. And thanks, everybody. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Archaeology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. You can provide feedback using the contact button on the right side of the website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeology. Or you can email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Please like and share the show wherever you saw it so more people can have a chance to listen and learn. Send us show suggestions and follow ArcPodNet on Twitter and Instagram. This show was produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network. Opinions are solely those of the hosts and guests of the show. However, the APN stands by their hosts. Special thanks to the band Sea Hero for letting us use their song, I Wish You'd Look. Check out their albums on Bandcamp at seahero.bandcamp.com. Check out our next episode in two weeks, and in the meantime, keep learning. Keep discovering new things and keep listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Have an awesome day. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.